0: Grace and peace to you all today. I am Captain Roger of the Salvation Army's Grass Valley Corps, and I have two stories I want to tell before we get into our scripture passage for today. Now, I'm going to do my best to keep both of them brief, because you know how I get when I'm telling a story. Let's start with this guy, Noah. Noah lived in a hard world. The people were self-centered and violent and absolutely devoted to the evil that they permeated their lives with. But Noah. Noah was different. He clung to the old ways that put God first, and he tried to live as if every person mattered. Rather than looking out for himself, he was constantly trying to serve others to the best of his ability. Noah was a good guy, quite the opposite of the rest of the world. Now, I'm sure you've heard versions of his story. How God came to him and told him that judgment was coming, how the evil of the world was just going to be washed away and the creator was going to restore his creation to an earlier stage and see if it could recapture some of the beauty that it had turned away from. I'm sure you heard that God told Noah to build a boat and then sent animals to live on board. And then the rivers rose and the seas overflowed and the rain poured down in ways that it never had before and never has since. And that ship sat on the waters, remaining solid ground while all that Noah knew washed away. While everyone else was taken by the disaster, never to walk the earth again, Noah and his family sat dry and secure inside the giant craft that had become their home. And then, a year after the waves had lifted them above the destruction, they settled down on top of a mountain which had been submerged but was now emerging again. And not long after that, the God who had saved them opened the door and let them walk down onto a renewed earth into a new life well the rest had been taken in judgment they had been left behind to join a new creation my uh, second story starts much later in history just about 200 years ago In the late 1700s, a spiritism movement began, and by the early 1800s, it was gaining strength and growing into the corners of the world. Now, I said spiritism, not spiritualism, the distinction being that spiritism is the kind of thing that turned into spirit guides telling people they were talking to your dead relatives, and for a small price, they'd be happy to pass on messages about the future. Well, spiritualism is, at least hopefully, a growing revival where people turn to God in larger than usual numbers. All right? Now, around 1820, in Glasgow, Scotland, a young woman named Margaret MacDonald began to claim that she was having visions. She was about 15 at the time and had begun to attend spiritism conferences where handfuls of believers gathered to experience a religious fervor together. It's said that at one of these gatherings, Margaret slipped into a trance and she received a vision from God that a select group of believers would be removed from the earth before the days of the Antichrist would come. A popular spiritism preacher of the day, a guy named John Darby, he was either present at that meeting or he heard of her vision and he adapted it into a teaching he began to put out a handful of years later, which said all believers would be taken up before the Antichrist came. He, John, became a leader of this large splinter group of believers who had become the Plymouth Brethren denomination. Good people, by the way. He caught the attention of people in London with his popular services, which might have just been a fad riding on the coattails of the spiritism movement, but it got Darby invited to do a preaching tour through the United States. And while he was here, he caught the attention of evangelist Dwight Moody, the founder of Chicago's Moody Institute, who began to include this so-called rapture theology of Darby in his teaching. Now, there was a Missouri preacher and author, a guy named James Brooks, who caught the rapture bug as well, and a student of his... Uh, a gentleman by the name of C.I. Schofield uh, included that teaching in the reference Bibles that he began to produce just after the turn of the 20th century. And Schofield, he did this thing where he put his reference and commentary notes right into the biblical text, which made it very easy to read and to see what he thought things meant. Schofield's reference Bible became one of the best-selling books of the 20th century and in its 1967 update was seized on by folks like Hal Lindsey who sold millions of books predicting the end of the world and the uh, we've got a ticket to heaven so we can watch the rest of you burn kind of thinking. It was really popular in the 1970s and 80s. And then came this left-behind phenomenon of the 90s, where a lengthy series of novels was seized on by youth groups and evangelical churches and promoted as being biblical teaching in spite of the serious lack of connection to scripture in any of the particulars. These were novels, and they were not bad reading, but they were not the Bible story. But my bias may be showing. Here's something to consider, though. The whole idea from that very first seed to the full-blown Kirk Cameron film adaptations of the novels rests on a couple of passages that in English sound like they are suggesting people will be taken away. And the connection which was made by English-reading laypeople with no scholarly training was that they would want to be taken. So obviously that is what God would do for them. Now today, clearer thinking has begun to take hold in some of those denominations, which taught that a rapture is coming, and they've begun to rather sheepishly dust some of their pronouncements under the rug in hopes that people might just forget about the thing altogether. At its peak, though... In the late 1900s, about a tenth of the Western Protestant churches may have been telling their members to believe that cars, planes, and elevator cars would suddenly be left with piles of clothing where people who loved Jesus had been standing just a moment before. That number has certainly dropped over the last quarter century, but there are still plenty of folks out there who are of this mind. that This rapture is going to come and you know Jesus better take the wheel because my hands won't be on it anymore. Now, if I have offended you by stepping on one of your favorite beliefs, let me please offer you two things while we move on. And, um, forgive me, while we leave this behind. Uh, first, it is okay to believe that I am wrong in this. There are plenty of fairly intelligent folks who cling to this belief as their life ring in our crazy world. Secondly, let me offer you some of the words of Jesus, which has been used to shore up belief in the rapture. We're going to talk about what they would have meant when he said them and what they mean to us when we read them now. So you already have your Bible in hand because I asked you to go grab it. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 24, where we're going to head for verse 36, Matthew 24, 36. Now here, Jesus is in the middle of making some statements about the future. He started by telling his followers what to watch for to know that the temple was going to fall the way that he predicted. We talked about that last time. Now, he's going to tell them how to know when his kingdom, the full reign of the Messiah that his disciples had asked about, when that was going to occur. All right. You with me? Matthew 24, verse 36. One sec here. But about that day or hour, this is Jesus speaking, by the way. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. I'm going to stop right there because this statement made some early scribes really uncomfortable. Here and there we found copies of this book where the bit about the Son not knowing the time has been cut out. Now, unlike those scribes or some modern thinkers, most of the early Christians and many modern scholars have no problem accepting that there may be things that God, the creator, is aware of that Jesus, God who has humbled himself to take on human nature and appearance, may not have been aware of, well, he was among us as one of us teaching. Could he have reached out to his God nature and taken hold of that knowledge? Oh, that is a fun argument, which I would love to have with you someday, but it is beside the point of the story that Matthew is telling us, so I'm going to leave it alone for the moment. However, if you want to talk this through, come and see me in person, send me an email, or, uh, hey, just leave comments down under one of these videos or the podcast, and uh, we'd be happy to get into that. Where was I? Right, verse 36, But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the sun but only the father as it was in the days of noah so it will be at the coming of the son of man for in the days before the flood people were eating and drinking marrying and being given in marriage up to the day that noah entered the ark and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away that is how it will be at the coming of the son of man See, in the days of noah people were just going about their lives They'd ignored the warning of Noah building a ship. We're we're not told what they thought of the procession of animal pairs coming to join his family on board. But whatever it was, it apparently wasn't enough to prompt them to turn back to God for salvation. I've done the math on the space available in the ark, and there probably could have been quite a few people saved, or, or God might have even changed his mind if others had turned to him. But they didn't. Noah was the only righteous person. His family wasn't even included in that. But because of Noah, they were also saved. Well, how were they saved? They were saved by being left behind when everyone else was taken. You saw that, right? That's what it said right in in our scripture. They knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. Those who were taken are those who were judged and facing the consequences of their refusal to be the people they were created to be. They made a choice. God enforced it. He didn't take his people away first or at all. He just said, Noah, this is what's going to happen. And Noah trusted him and acted as if that thing was going to happen. And as a result, he was saved. Jesus says that this... Is an example of what it will be like when the kingdom of God is allowed to fully manifest. There will be signs and warnings, but most people won't notice or care. I mean, life goes on, right? Until it doesn't, until it's taken away. Look at verse 40. It says, Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill, and one will be taken, and the other will be left. This isn't a description of rapture. It's a description of judgment, just like the judgment in Noah's day. As Jesus went on to say, this is verse 42, Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Keep watch! That doesn't mean that we should live in a state of panic as if judgment is about to fall on us like a ton of bricks and we need to be afraid. Uh-uh, that's not what Jesus is trying to put across here. It is better understood uh, if we we picture this as the image of someone who's on night watch, being at their post the way they're supposed to be, instead of wandering away or falling asleep at their station. Disciples of Jesus are meant to stay ready for Him to suddenly be beside us. Just checking. Now, the prophets of old used a similar description of judgment coming unexpectedly. Jeremiah and Obadiah both talk about a thief coming in the night to take all they want. God, they say, will strip the earth of everyone that is not his people. They will be taken like a thief takes treasure and it's gone. I mean, yeah, if we knew God was going to make that happen next Tuesday at two in the afternoon, quite frankly, Knowing human nature, we would probably try to get away with everything we could before he got back, right? Oh, Jesus is coming at 2. I'd better set, better set an alarm for one thirty, so I have time to pick up a bit. Maybe ask for forgiveness. Now, Jesus is saying that is not the right approach to life. Instead, we should expect that the kingdom is going to manifest at any time. We should live like it's already here. Because in a way, in more than a way, it is. We'll get to that. We should live as if we are already in the new creation that we are hoping the world will become. That we expect that God will make happen. Because that's what he's promised. Jesus uh, isn't done though. Look at verse 45. He continues. He says, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It'll be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. Now, in our American culture, we all worry about being leaders. I need to be a leader. I got to be a good leader. But Jesus says we should remember that we are servants who've been given a role to fill. We have purpose in life. We have a job that we are supposed to be doing. And if we are properly caring for the world that we have been left in, doing the job that we have been assigned, and the people who are in this with us, in the world around us, are being cared for by us the way that we have been asked to care for them, then the master will be pleased when he sees what we're doing. Seems simple, right? Follow the master's instructions. All's well, right? Yeah, simple. Check out the next verse, 48. 48. Suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, Oh, my master is staying away a long time. And then he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day that he does not expect him. And at an hour he is not aware of, he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So when will the master come? The master will come at an unexpected day and time. What will you have done with the people that you serve when that happens? What will you have done with the resources the master gave you to use for them? Now, they didn't have cell phones or even landlines back in the days of the Roman Empire. When people traveled, as those with money or holdings were prone to do, there wasn't really a simple way for them to let folks know when they were coming home or for them to communicate that. They would sometimes take the effort to send a messenger ahead so that the family or servants or both would have a chance to prepare and be ready for the arrival. In fact, there's a whole tradition of uh, of sending a messenger ahead so that they would let folks know to be ready for you. But there could be some time between the message and when the traveler actually got home. They would need to get ready, but then they would need to stay ready. We could say that Jesus was giving us the message of the uh, coming kingdom of God so that we know we need to stand ready to receive it. There, there was, however, another part of that tradition among the Romans. If, if the master thought the servants or his wife was not being faithful, he might appear suddenly and unexpectedly to see what the reality might be. We could say that we've been warned that our faithfulness is going to be on display What is it the master will see when he arrives? Will we be living out his commands as good servants do? Or will we be living in rebellion against the master's instructions? In in Luke's story of this teaching of Jesus, he included this. This is from Luke chapter 17. Once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The coming of the kingdom of God isn't something that can be observed. Nor will people say, oh, here it is, or there it is. Because the kingdom of God is in your midst. And i got to tell you, I like this way of thinking about it much better than that of the servant waiting for the return of the master. If we are expecting the full kingdom at any time, which Jesus says we do, then it only makes sense for us to live as if we are already in that new creation. The the rule of God is already extends over us, even if the world is broken and living in rebellion at the moment. So if we choose to live as citizens of the kingdom, following the commands of the king, we not only help prepare the world for the unexpected arrival that's going to happen soon, maybe 2,000 years from now, or maybe before I even finish speaking this morning, could be either, could be somewhere in between, could be somewhere farther on either end. I don't know. But if we start living as if that's going to happen, then we not only help prepare the world for that time, but we certainly can know that we will be ready if we are simply living as we will be then. Does that make sense? I hope so. Because that's what it's all about, isn't it? Living out the kingdom of God helps to heal the world. And it keeps us ready for the time when the Messiah's reign begins in a whole new way, bringing the promises of God to fruition for all of us once and for all time. You with me? All right. Amen. Right? That's what we are waiting for. God has promised the kingdom is coming. Jesus has said, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's breaking in. It's right here. It's about to take hold. Be ready. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you have given us messages and warnings so that we know that the time is coming that you will be here. We know that at any moment you might arrive and that when you do, you're going to check and see what is it that we're doing? What is it we have done with the resources, with the lives that you have given us? God, um, help us to be ready. Help us uh, follow the instructions that you've given us for life. Help us follow the command that you sent to us through your son, which he said again and again encompasses all other commands and all that is is that we are to love you with all of our hearts our minds and our strength and to demonstrate that love we are to love our neighbor as ourself help us to love lord help us to make that choice to put the well-being of others ahead of our own so that we are working to bring everyone into your kingdom so that we are working to get everyone to accept the place that you have offered them that we are working to let everyone know that you care about each and every one of us just the way that we are and that you want us to step into your world and out of that world of selfishness and despair and self-centeredness that will lead to destruction We pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Hey, wherever you are, wherever you're going, you have nothing to fear. Because wherever you go, God is already there. Go with God. Grace and peace to each and every one of you today.